This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 45, entitled Anti-Imperial Christology in Philippians, Part 1. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. For the past few episodes, we have been examining historically how Paul's Christological claims about the risen Lord Jesus Christ would have butted heads with the widespread belief in the Roman world that Caesar is the true Lord of the world. It became quite apparent to me, as it already has with the majority of modern Pauline scholars, that Paul was deliberately describing Jesus in a way that was openly subversive to Caesar and the Roman imperial theology surrounding him. In the context of the Greco-Roman world, to believe that Jesus was Lord was to insist that Caesar is not. We have dubbed this manner of describing Christ as anti-imperial Christology. Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi also contains many traces of anti-imperial Christology, enough material to make up multiple podcast episodes. Hopefully you are enjoying this historical look at Paul's subversive depictions of Jesus Christ because we will be on this subject for a while longer. The text within Philippians that will be our focus today is Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. This passage reads, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That's Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. Preparation for this episode, I am drawing upon the work of Peter Oakes in his study of the historical reconstruction of Philippi. Interested listeners should know that the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and Roman colonies tried very hard to imitate Rome in all things especially Rome's policies on religious matters. It is not surprising that when Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, Paul found the Jewish women on the Sabbath outside of Philippi's city precincts. Philippi there had followed the example set by Rome and also had expelled the Jews from Rome in some manner. Philippi was also a city that had in its population many retired former commanders of the Roman military who were given lands in Philippi with the promise that they would receive the same privileges as Roman citizens while living out in Philippi. So then, the question could be raised, how would readers of Philippians respond when Paul wrote Philippians 3 verses 20 through 21? Let's explore this passage a bit further. Our first point today is looking at the politics and ethics of Philippians 3, 20-21. It is clear from the phrase, our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul states in Philippians 3.20, that Paul wanted his Philippian readers to recognize that, in Christ, they belong to another state. 
This assures the careful interpreter that Philippians 3, verses 20-21, is, without a doubt, political in nature. Roman citizens made a connection between their citizenship and their ethics, pointing them to what was ethical and where their allegiance lies. When Paul visited Philippi, his preaching was accused of redefining what was ethical for Roman citizens. Look here in Acts chapter 16. This passage reads, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. That's Acts 16, verses 19 through 21. If Paul is redefining his readers' citizenship in light of their Christian experience, then their allegiances no longer should be placed in Philippi, a Roman colony loyal to Rome and her emperor. At the time of the writing of Philippians, Nero was Caesar. Thus, Paul's Christological argument also served to redefine his readers' citizenship, ethics, and loyalties on a grand scale. This was no personalized belief to remain merely in the heart of his Philippian converts. Our second point today in looking at Philippians 3 verses 20-21 notes that Jesus is described with the title Savior. Philippians 3.20 states that out of heaven will come the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to this point, Paul has never used the term Savior at all, and Philippians 3.20 is the only occurrence of this title in Paul's undisputed letters. So its usage here in Philippians 3.20 is extremely noteworthy. In light of the unambiguous political context of our current passage, the question needs to be raised regarding how ascribing to Jesus the title Savior would have been understood in a Roman imperial context. Philippians 3.20 notes that a believer's citizenship is in heaven, not in Philippi. It is out of this heavenly citizenship that this Savior will come to earth in order to rescue them. In the context of Philippi as a Roman colony, the only such person of whom this could be described was none other than the Roman emperor. The Roman military commanders who settled in Philippi, with the exact promise that if peace would to become unstable, Caesar would come out of Rome with his armies and would rescue the endangered citizens of Philippi. This, in fact, actually happened a few decades prior to the writing of Philippians, when the emperor's legions came from Rome to Philippi to deal with the invading Thracians. In other words, Paul has reassured the Philippian Christians that it is Jesus who will return to save you as the true Savior, not Caesar. It was widely known that Savior was a popular title for Roman emperors. A surviving inscription in Ephesus says the following of Julius Caesar, quote, The God made manifest 
offspring of Ares and Aphrodite, and common savior of human life, end quote. The famous Priene calendar inscription, inscribed in the year 9 BC, gives the details of praise given to Augustus. Quote, Providence created the most perfect good for our lives, filling him, meaning filling Augustus, with virtue for the benefit of mankind, sending us and those after us a Savior who put an end to war and established all things. And whereas the birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of the gospel through his coming, end quote. Two further inscriptions regard the Emperor Claudius as the Savior of the world and God who is Savior and Benefactor. So even the Emperor Claudius was called Savior in multiple inscriptions. What we are seeing is not just that the rulers of Rome are given the title Savior, but also that the Roman Emperor demonstrated the ability and power to rescue the people from dire straits, acting as a benefactor for the entire Roman world. In other words, the title Savior implied that the person was able to demonstrate tangible salvation and rescue on a grand scale. For Paul, Jesus Christ was the true Savior, able to rescue his followers from sin, death, and corruption in a manner that no Roman emperor could ever compare. And this leads to our third point. Our third point today is that the saving action of the Savior, Jesus Christ, is mentioned in Philippians 3.21. The saving action of the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul remarks that when Jesus returns, he will transform the bodies of his followers from a humble state to conform with his glorious resurrection body. Jesus does this, as Paul states, quote, by the exertion of the power that he even has to subject all things to himself. That's the end of Philippians 3.21. Philippians' earlier notes that Jesus received his power and authority from God the Father when Jesus was highly exalted. That's Philippians 2, verse 10. In other words, God gave this power to Jesus in order that Jesus will subject all things to himself. The statement in Philippians 3.21 would also have been heard as parodying the emperor, since he too was given power and authority for a specific saving task. Valius Paterculus, a historian of Rome commenting on the death of Augustus, states in regard to his successor, Tiberius, that, quote, On the misgivings of mankind at this time, the trepidation of the Senate, the confusion of the people, the fears of the city, of the narrow margin between safety and ruin on which we then found ourselves, I have no time to tell. Suffice it for me to voice the common utterance, the world whose ruin we had feared we found not even disturbed, and such was the majesty of one man, that there was no need of arms either to defend the good or restrain the bad. End quote. That's 
Valius Paterculus in his Roman History, Book 2, paragraph 124, verse 1. Tiberius, as we see here, acted as the Roman savior, although Tiberius initially refused the power. As the historian notes, Tiberius eventually accepted this authority and ensured peace in the Roman Empire. This sense of safety was felt by all people, as the historian continues, quote, On that day, there sprang up once more in parents the assurance of safety for their children, in husbands for the sanctity of marriage, in owners for the safety of their property, and in all men the assurance of safety, order, peace, and tranquility. End quote. That again is Vilius Paterculus in his Roman History, Book 2, paragraph 103, verse 5. Clearly, the Roman emperor was the protector of the people. So for Paul to describe Jesus as the one who will rescue his people from the perils of mortality, offering them everlasting security with resurrection bodies in the consummated kingdom of God, this makes Jesus a greater Savior and Lord than any Roman emperor could ever claim. In other words, Paul depicts the returning Jesus as the true Savior and Lord, who will rescue his people in light of the power bestowed upon him for the saving act of resurrection and transformation. So, in conclusion, we have observed that, number one, like Romans and 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the Philippians portrays Jesus Christ in a manner that deliberately subverts the imperial theology of the Roman emperor. Number two, we saw that by locating a believer's true citizenship in heaven, out of which will come the king and his kingdom, Paul sought to reorient the ethics and allegiances of his Philippian converts. And number three, we observe that if Jesus is the true Savior, then Caesar is a fraud Savior. Upon his resurrection and exaltation, Jesus was empowered by God the Father with the ability and authority to rescue his people in a manner far surpassing anything that could be claimed of the emperors of Rome. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. There is a PayPal link in the episode's description. Thank you so much for joining us today, and please look forward to our future episodes where we will look at anti-imperial Christology in the Philippian hymn of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where there are eight points where Paul describes Jesus in a way that contrasts the Roman emperor. Thank you so much for listening to us. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.